I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Hello and welcome to a special, maybe the most special Cheeky Scientist radio show we have ever done because we're talking about something that most people avoid, certainly academics, money. As a PhD, you should be aiming to make as much money as possible for doing meaningful work and not feeling guilty about it. Too many people are out there saying that money doesn't matter. Don't worry about money. Do what you love. Most of these people have never earned large amounts of money. So, of course, they're going to justify themselves, their choices, uh, them giving up on their careers by saying that. I don't want that to be you. Instead, I want you to know that money is not the root of all evil, right? Money allows us to uh, make a transaction value for value. Whatever you think about money, put it aside for now. Open up your mind into a state of discovery. It allows you to transact value before money. You know what people traded for value? Weapons, forced labor. Okay, so if you think about it that way, money is a very, very good thing. It can be, especially if you're getting paid a lot of it for doing meaningful work. And that's what I want for you as a PhD. You should be paid a big salary for doing meaningful work. Anyone preaching that money doesn't matter in your career either gave up on their career, never worked hard enough to earn a big salary, or wants you to work for them as cheap labor. Ignore these people. I'm going to talk about some math. I'm going to get to the cheeky stack too. We're going to talk about your job search, but you must learn to be driven by money. It is a good thing. You should be paid well for doing, doing meaningful work. You should be rewarded for your value. Okay, you can't know your value or remember your value as a PhD if you're not being paid your value. And you know what? Maybe right now you're not as valuable as you could be. Maybe you don't have enough industry experience or skill sets. Maybe you haven't learned to speak the language of industry. You haven't developed your business acumen. These things will help you gain more value, right? Because it's linked to performance. You're not entitled to more money. You have to earn it. And I know if you're listening to this podcast, you are an earner. You can earn more money and you should always try to earn more money and rapidly. Otherwise, you'll get into industry and you'll be taken for a ride. That's why I'm talking about this. I don't want you to be taken for a ride. I want you to get as much money as possible. I want you to have a target of money. I don't want you to accept less than your worth, worth because you've been anchored so low in academia. Money is going to give you freedom. Okay, if, if it gets you a car or a vacation, it helps you uh, take care of your family. These things are good. But at the end of it, it's the freedom that it provides. Freedom from worry. Freedom from concern about having enough money to survive or to provide for yourself, your family. So you can spend your time instead, right, being concerned with projects, things that excite you. Uh, travel, your kids, your family, your marriage, whatever it might be. You need to be able to talk about, if you can't even talk about money, I don't even know what you're doing trying to get into a career, okay? Money's not a bad thing. You got to talk about it. The people at the highest level are talking about it. Why do you think every company, right, that has uh, any decent-sized company has a CFO? Why do you think the CFO and the CEO are usually tied together at the hip? 
They care about the company's money. They watch it every single day. They forecast it. They, they revise it. They uh, have bookkeepers that every day are tracking every single transaction. What are you doing? You're going to be used by the system. You're going to be used by somebody else to make them more money if you don't get your mind right as a PhD when it comes to money. Now, some of you are, are at a disadvantage. Maybe some of you grew up with a lot of money. Although I've, I've never really met somebody that would uh, necessarily admit this, right? We all, people, right, in general, everybody has reference points. What we think, how hard we work, for example, uh, is based on our perspective. So you talk to most people, they're going to say, oh, I work hard. Yeah, uh, uh, compared to what they think not, not working hard is, right? Very few people will say, yeah, I don't work hard. Likewise, most people say, well, I didn't have a lot of money growing up because they're comparing themselves to people who had more money. So across the board, whatever country you're in, right, there's always going to be a reference point of people who had less money and people who had more. What I want you to do, though, is I want, to fo I want you to focus on the pain of having less money than you want. And I want you to let that drive you to actually take some of the actions to make some monetary goals for your career. You know, for me, I grew up, again, uh, less money than I wanted, uh, grew up in a, a very poor, uh, poor rural parts of, of different uh, states, countries. My, my parents were on uh, government assistance, had uh, kids young. Uh, we were on food stamps and, you know, we got the big blocks of government cheese and uh, rice growing up. To me, that was normal. Uh, things got worse over time. I remember being, getting ready for school and um, hearing our car start in uh, outside of our house. We didn't have a garage. It was, it, it was started out front. The only problem was everybody was inside the house and all of a sudden our car was gone. So we had a moment where we thought our car was stolen. Uh, uh, spoiler alert, it was repossessed because uh, our parents, uh, my parents couldn't uh, keep paying for the car. We thought it was stolen. Our, my parents were so embarrassed that they didn't tell us it was stolen. So I went to school telling everybody uh, the car had been stolen. And uh, it wasn't until, I don't know, like a week later that it was repossessed, right? And I didn't really know what that meant at the time. You know, we didn't have enough money to pay for it. So it was taken back, right? Fortunately, when you're young, these things might be painful, but you're resilient when you're young. And as you get older, you can use these things to drive you. Eventually, uh, my parents went bankrupt. We had to uh, go and, and find uh, people that would allow us to live with them. And we had to eat at a soup kitchen a few times. And so this was, this was a challenging part of my childhood that showed me opportunity. It was a point in my life where I said, I'm going to make sure that this doesn't happen to me and my family. And I have a feeling if you're listening to this, if you went to get your PhD, I know how hard you ha had to work just to get into a graduate school program, let alone to go through everything that a PhD has to go through to, you know, to have a thesis project, to work the hours you work, how, how far you've pu pushed your mind and to have to, to go beyond that. Some of you are in postdocs, et cetera. Some of you came from one country to another. I know that you have a similar story and I know that maybe you're hiding from it or maybe you're not using it to your full advantage. Maybe you have just some hazy, fuzzy goal of having more money to take care of yourself or your family. 
you're, you're very driven. You want to have an impact on humanity. You've let other people, especially lifetime academics, infect you with the lie that money doesn't matter or it's not valuable or it's not just as important as the meaningful work that you're doing. It is. If you're not being compensated well to your expectations, it's because you're not asking. It's because you don't have a target. And it's because you've let other people convince you that there's nobility in not getting paid what you're worth. You've let other people convince you because it's easier too, right? It feels better if we think, well, I'm not getting paid as much as these other people. Or I'm not getting paid like, but that, that's my choice. What I'm doing is actually valuable, even though nobody will pay me for it. It doesn't work that way. If what you were doing was valuable, if it really mattered, you'd be paid more for it. That's a hard pill to swallow. In academia, PhDs, in one sense, are not valuable because there's so many of them. It's simple economics. It's supply and demand. There's an oversupply of PhDs. You wonder why PhDs, uh, even in, even in uh, countries that tend to quote unquote pay postdocs well, pay so little because there's so many of them. They're not valuable. The good news is you're very valuable in industry. Better news. You'll get paid what you ask for as long as you're developing your skills and you're performing. Maybe you want to make more than your current skill sets, uh, your current understanding of industry, your current knowledge base will allow, but the good news is you can learn more. And as a PhD, you're a doctor of learning. So let's have some final thoughts here on money. Just, just think about whatever that goal would be for you, right? We always hear a lot of people, I, I don't know, like maybe it's, you know, the, my generation, the generation before me, after me, uh, a lot of us think of, you know, the mi million dollars or whatever it is for you, million pounds, you know, whatever the conversion is, you know, that's, that's very wealthy. You know, that's the goal that I want to get to one day. I, I went to become a PhD so I could have an incredible career and I could have that in the bank. And I'm just using this as a reference point because a lot of you are thinking, oh, I'm making, you know, I can make pretty good money. I was only getting $1,600 in my stipend per month. I can't even imagine what it would be like to get five, six, seven thousand dollars per month. It goes quickly. You're trying to create a better life for yourself, but also hopefully a better life for uh, another generation. Do you know what target you need to hit to make that possible? If you have a million dollars in the bank, here's the sad truth, and this will be very hard for you to comprehend. But I want this is all about helping you. Think bigger for your career, helping you be more aggressive in your job search, more assertive, if you like that word better. If you have a million dollars, you're not wealthy, you're worried. Having one kid, you know what it costs to have one kid and to put him through college over the course of that kid's life? 1.5 million each. Okay, there you go. Your million savings, it's no good. So you, you think you're going to retire one day? You can't even, you can't even get a million dollars in the bank. And if you did and you had no other income coming in, you know how long that would last? If you only spent $5,000 a month, let's say you're in industry, you're, you're getting a, a good salary, not even a good salary if it's only $5,000 a month, guess how long that would last? If you had a million dollars in the bank, you retired from a job where you were getting $5,000 a month, you were living on $5,000 a month, 16.5 years without income. This is assuming no inflation. This is assuming you don't have to take care of anybody else, right? I just talked about one kid costing 1.5 million. 
Now, let's say it's closer to, to $10,000 per month. Let's say you've been in industry for a while. You, you have a salary. It would have to be north of $150,000 after taxes for you to be bringing home $10,000 a month, actually probably closer to $200,000 with taxes to be bringing home $10,000 a month. You save a million dollars. You want to retire. It's only going to last you eight years if you're spending $10,000 a month. Now, you might be thinking, well, you know, I was able to live off of a few hundred dollars or a thousand dollars on my stipend or my postdoc. Yeah, but you had a lot of other problems. That wasn't your ideal lifestyle. You want to do things with your life. If you want to stay that small, this is not the radio show for you and Cheeky Scientist is not for you. But if you want to get paid what you're worth and go as far as you can in industry, you have to consider these numbers. So let's say you get to that point. And that's the first target that I want all of you to think about. I don't care what country you're from. I don't care what your background is. If you have a PhD or on your way to getting a PhD, I want you to set $10,000 a month as your first target. It's not a great target, as I'll explain, but I want you to set that as your first target. Okay, so $10,000 a month, buff, you know, that's, if that's gross, it's $120,000 a year. You have to take your job search very seriously, negotiate as aggressively as possible, but with win-win, following all of our methodologies to get into a position to be able to do that within a couple of years of getting into industry. I was able to start getting paid $100,000 in industry per year within my first year after six months. Why? Because I asked. I had a plan, a strategy. It wasn't perfect. I took some step backs, uh, steps back after that, some steps forward after I had to go through a learning process. If I had a better plan, it would have been much better and, and much easier to go further faster. And that's what I want for you. So let's say you get $10,000 per month. That's your gross, okay? Guess what? The government isn't going to let you pay yourself first. You should know that by now, right? The government is going to take out taxes first. They don't trust you. They're like, oh, this person's going to blow their money. I'm going to take our taxes out first. If you're getting paid that amount, depending on where you are, it could be much higher than this. Not going to be lower than this, but when it comes to Social Security, Medicare, so the taxes that come out of your paycheck, federal taxes, let alone any state or province or local taxes, 40%, that's your best case, or is going to be taken out of that $10,000 per month. What does that leave you with? $6,000. What you need to get to, if you want to actually start putting money away and working towards an, a place of financial security where some, one thing can't go wrong, right? And you have to take on debt, you know, let alone pay off debt you already have. The goal you have to get to is the $10,000 per month. This is just to start for those of you that haven't transitioned into in industry yet. They're, the government's going to take away at least 40%. For some of you in other countries, much higher. Okay. You're left with $6,000. You need to get to a point where you can save 40% of your gross income. Okay. What would, what would that mean? So you have 4,000 taken off a of 10, another 4,000 if you're putting that in your savings, 4,000, what does that leave you with? $2,000. Where can you live on $2,000 a month? I'm waiting. Not many places. Now, you probably found a way to do it in grad school. The point is, if you look at it from that point of view and you do that math, it's going to be very easy to say no to, oh, I'm going to say no to... Uh, this new car. I'm going to say no to blowing money on this. I can only live off of $2,000. 
That's your starting point. Now, maybe you can only put away $2,000 in saving because you need $4,000 to live off of. Great. Work up to that 40%. The first goal, again, $10,000 per month gross. And of course, working to increase that in your career on a daily basis. The next goal, put away 40% of your gross income. The gross income. So you don't take 40% after right? The government takes their share. It's 40% off of what your gross is and live off the rest. That's your target. And I hope that helps you reframe how far you are away from actually building any sort of financial independence. Everybody around you will want to anchor you in the opposite direction because they've never earned money, because they never went further in their career. There's some of you probably listening to this being like, oh, forget this. All these self-justifications probably going into your head about how this is crazy or not true or forget this guy. Look, it's math, okay? If you want to have the biggest impact possible, you need to get paid more. You need to have a target that you can hit, and I'm giving you some targets, okay? Don't be afraid to talk about it. If you see people, uh, other PhDs, especially on social media, lifetime academics, whatever, trying to muddy the waters by saying, oh, you know, well, the nobility of your work or this or that. Look, why, why is it either or? It can be both. Why can't you be paid incredibly large, huge salaries? You're a PhD. You're more educated than 98% of the population. Why can't you be paid a huge salary and do meaningful work? You absolutely can. Okay, let's go to the cheeky stack. Our feature conversation topic and article today comes from Tina per- Pearson. Can you work with a less qualified people uh, and 19 other, uh, can you work with less qualified people and 19 other curveball questions to navigate at industry interviews? I really love this article because first of all, uh, many of the questions are the exact questions we've been training you on for years. So I'm going to recap some of those, but this question is coming up a lot. Can you work with less qualified people? Industry employers are hiring more PhDs than ever before. They know that you respect other PhDs. They know you're highly qualified, you're high tech, lots of technical skills. But can you talk to people that are less qualified than you, have less technical skills than you without you feeling, uh, without you making them feel like you're talking down to them, without being condescending? Do you, will you have the patience to train them? That's what they want to know. And so you can call upon your experience. Maybe you've had to mentor uh, an undergrad uh, in your classroom, the lab, people that learned in a different way than you. That's the best way to answer this, people learn at different paces and in a different way. So you would change your approach in terms of training to serve the other person best. Patience, communication skills, all of this uh, comes into play here. Another question, what do you perceive as some of the disadvantages to working in industry? Okay. Uh, now, I disagree with the answer that's given in this article. The safe answer is that research projects in industry ebb and flow with changes in the company's commercial direction. Uh, That's not a good answer, (laughs) okay? Uh, What are the disadvantages of working in industry? Uh, The disadvantage is not that uh, it's a company. They don't want to hear that you think that business in general is a disadvantage. They don't want you to they don't want to hear from you that the company's corporate strategy or the, the commercial direction is a disadvantage or that you're in any way going to hesitate to pivot with the company if a market's not responding to a product or a research project, okay? Instead, you want to talk about how you 
are able to move very quickly. You want to talk about how you can work with a team very quickly. Okay. If they push you for a disadvantage of industry, uh, you'll have to say that the project management methodology can be a little bit more rigid, but there's advantages, advantages of that as well. How else can you get a thousand people or a couple hundred people moving in the same direction? It's a very similar question to what is your biggest weakness? Okay. That's, you know, you don't want to give the answer that, you know, sometimes I can be lazy. Okay. Sure. That's true of everybody, but you don't want to say that in a job interview. So you also don't want to say in a job interview of, oh, you know, uh, I'm going to have interests that are different from the company. Don't say that. Okay. Talk about how projects get done in industry, how quickly it can move and then quickly pivot to the, the other side of it, which makes that an advantage. That's what I would focus on. What are the advantages of working for us rather than for another company? We've been talking about this one for years. You have to, this should be a slam dunk. You should be so excited to get this question because you've done your research and you know the one, the one area that this company wins versus every other company. And that's what you're going to bring up. It's probably on their website. The, the value, what's their top value, their mission. That's where they win. That's what you want to bring up here. Why would we or any company hire you instead of a more experienced professional? These are all the behavioral questions we train extensively on in our Cheeky Scientist Association. We've talked about many of them on uh, other radio shows as well. Um, here in the article, it says, uh, you want to draw attention to your differences and unique abilities, emphasize that you can bring fresh ideas. That's a pretty generic answer. Uh, the, the heart of the matter is you want to focus on your unique selling proposition and as a PhD, you might think that your unique selling proposition, and this is where the article fails to, to expand on, you might think that it's your technical skills. It's not. Every other PhD or every other technical person they're trying to hire will have those technical skills. They'll be talking about their technical skills because that's the language of academia. Instead, talk about your transferable skills, the business acumen that you developed that no other PhD will bring up. Where are you differentiated? You're not just a technically sound PhD. You're not just a great scientist, great engineer, you have business acumen, right? You understand the importance of network, of collaboration, risk management, change management. You've learned to speak the language of industry. What do you see as the most important issue in this field today? Okay. Now, I do agree with the article here. It says, showcase your knowledge of current theory and research in your field, right? So showcase that you understand the sector of industry you're trying to get into. However, do not Try to tell the person on the other side of the interviewing table where they have, where they're currently failing. Don't try to tell them where they can save money or which markets they could get into. Okay, it's like saying, "Well, I know more than uh, you know all the the managers and executives here because clearly you're missing this obvious opportunity." You want to avoid that. What has acquiring your PhD done for you? Acquiring a. Uh, uh, this is not a word that you'll likely hear from most hiring managers or recruiters, um, but you you get the question, right? So, wh what did you learn when you got during uh, your PhD? That you know, what what skills did you learn? Focus on your transferable skills here, okay? Critical thinking, project management, public speaking. I I agree with the uh, the end answer there. Uh, what advantages do you like most about a non-academic career path? First of all, don't use non-academic. Like academia is somehow, you know, it's academia is not the, the lion's share of where PhDs are going to work. Uh, it's not alternative careers. It's not non-academic. It's industry careers. 
there, there's no industry employer who's going to say, uh, what do you like most about non-academic career? Like non -ac no, what do you like most about business? They're probably going to say business, business industry. What, what do you, what do you like about this sector of business? Why do you want to get into this, this sector of industry? Don't say you don't want to write grants. Don't say that you don't like uh, the university system. It's broken. Instead, tell the story about how everything that you've done has trained you for this position at hand. How everything that you have done in academia has trained you for the position that you're getting into in industry right now, the business. It's given you advantages. Uh, that Your training has given you advantages. And those cross over and are, are aligned perfectly with the industry career at hand, right? So the, the question was, what advantages do you like most about a non-academic career path? You don't want to, again, you don't want to go back to talking about what you don't like about academia and you don't want to talk about in terms of industry, you know, higher salary to pay. Talk about the experiences. You've done all of this training in the past that's per perfectly prepared you for this position so that now you can have all of these experiences that you're trained for. You want to work with teams in this way. You want to help translate your knowledge, your scientific knowledge, or your engineering knowledge or whatever, whatever knowledge base you have into a product that helps people or a service or a treatment that helps people. Um, show the interest in the career. You know, this, this talks about show uh, the answer here uh, in part says, you know, show your interest in learning from multidisciplinary teams. Again, multidisciplinary, this was a very academic written article or an academic person edited it. Uh, they're not going to use multidisciplinary. This is not the language of industry, okay? They're going to say cross-functional. They're going to say cross-departmental teams. Uh, that, that's what you can talk about. Talk about you want to work with different departments and teams to get bigger things done. Uh, but make sure that you are showing them your, in the interest in the position at hand, not that you're open to, you know, you want to dabble in all these other uh, parts of the business, et cetera. No, you're very focused on hitting the key uh, goals of the position and uh, making sure that you're hitting the, the key metrics for the position too. Is there a reason that you chose to do a PhD? I don't see that one very often. You know, why did you, why did you want to get a PhD if this role doesn't require a PhD? This is a great question. Um, and then again, you want to tell the story of how your decisions, right, were made on purpose. You, it's okay to talk about wanting to learn how to learn better, the, having a discovery mindset, research analysis, focus on the transferable skills that were gained. Not that you, you know, wanted to learn how to do, uh, you know, run a gel over and over again. Do you anticipate any, any conflict interacting with colleagues who have lesser qualifications? So that's the question that we wanted to end on here with this article uh, that the title of the article refers to. Um, and of course the answer is no, like we talked about. Uh, you want to, say that you have experience mentoring other people. People learn at different paces, at different speeds. Uh, the key is to be able to get into, uh, to be able to meet them at their level of how they learn best, right? It's a collaboration. Focus on examples of collaboration. Again, cross-functional collaborations that you've already done in your classroom or your lab. Uh, this is, you know, what you've been trained during your entire academic career to do to work with people with different experience levels, to share ideas, to train together, to learn. People that don't have technical knowledge, that's fine. You've gone into the classroom. Maybe you've had to grade papers from people uh, that were in an introductory class. Use that as an example. Uh, maybe you've had, again, undergrads come into your lab and so forth. You can nail these questions. Just be prepared for them.
those behavioral questions and make sure you're learning the questions in terms of the language of industry. Because if you, again, going back to some of the things we saw in this article, if you're primed to be waiting for the hiring manager, the recruiter who doesn't, isn't going to have a PhD 99% plus of the time to use the word multidisciplinary, et cetera, you're not going to hear that. Be trained on the trigger words like cross-functional, et cetera. That will improve, uh, you, you improve your ability to be able to key on the response that they're looking for. Okay, so good article in Forbes here. Three ways to level up your LinkedIn in 2021. It's by Kate Talbot. Uh, I just want to talk about a couple of, a couple of things in this article. There's, there's nothing groundbreaking here. It talks about authentically connecting, whatever that means. Uh, not a lot of specifics here, but what I would say uh, is always important to come back to is send a message with your connection request every time and make it about the other person and why you want to connect. Rationale is important. We know that as a PhD. I'm calling this article out because it talks about storytelling. You have to tell the story of yourself in the first person in your about section. Very different than what you do in a resume. I am so-and-so and I want these jobs is essentially what you're saying. And again, you're telling the story about how everything that you've done has trained you for these positions that you're interested in. That's the only reason I wanted to touch on that article. Uh, Kate Ashford wrote an article called Eight Essential Tasks to Jumpstart Your 2021 Job Search. Second task on the list here. The first one is, is pretty straightforward with, with having career goals in the first place, which is what I went over at the beginning of this show. The second one, though, build a resume, website, or portfolio. You're not going to be able to hide from this much longer. You're going to have to build a portfolio. You know, if you want a job as a data scientist, you already need a GitHub portfolio. You want a job as a scientific writer, editor, et cetera, you have to build a, a, a portfolio of written deliverables. You need to start having a port, no matter what job you want, they're going to come for your portfolio. So create a website. Plus, I recommend all of you get your first and last name as a URL. Go to uh, whatever site it could be, GoDaddy, it could be. Um, anywhere else where you can buy URLs, buy your name as a URL. If you can't find your first and last name, add your middle initial or your full, full middle name and put your, at the very least, put your resume on the website. Very in, inexpensive, free. There's free WordPress sites that you can use to do this. You want that to come up in the search results, right? Because when you're, being, when you're found on LinkedIn, the next place they're going to go is Google or some other search engine and look, uh, look up your name. Uh, you know, it talks about the importance of your cover letter, interview skills, et cetera. The only other thing that I wanted to mention here was number eight, committing to the process. As a PhD, you're not above the process. Remember when you first thought that, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to open the doors to the industry opportunities. I have my PhDs, you know, I'm finally going to make time to do this. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of people interested because after all, I have a PhD. So I'm going to upload my resume and I'm just going to wait to hear back. I'm sure I'll have Apple or Pfizer, Pfizer, Amazon, certainly some smaller biotechs or tech or engineering companies beating down my door very shortly. And then you heard crickets. Well, guess what? The same is true for the rest of your job search when you fail to take the process seriously, if you allow yourself to have that kind of entitled mindset. So you need to commit. You need to commit to the process as in, I understand that I got to get my resume right, my LinkedIn profile right. I have to nail the phone screen, the video interview, the site visit. I got to negotiate. If I don't do any part of this process, 
If I don't take it seriously, if I'm not committed to each step in that process, I will not get hired into the right job. And I'll certainly be underpaid if I happen to get a job offer at all. Ashley Jones wrote an article in the latter called How to Define Your Career Objective and Get What You Want. I like this because too many people never really think about which career to get into. They just dabble in the uh, job title they like the most. Oh, this job title and, you know, and their preconceived notions of what they do in that job title. But they've never really thought about creating a target for themselves, the professional lifestyle that they want, which is what you need to define first and then fit a job title to that. I wouldn't recommend you know, going the path of this article, it says to create a, you know, define a career objective. It's almost like the outdated objective statement of a, of a, of a resume. But I do think having a target, a professional lifestyle, considering the characteristics of the job that you want first will help you find the best fit job. Think about salary, right? Where is How high of salary? Where does that rank? Let's say you have eight characteristics. You have to rank them from the highest, you know, the most important to you to the least important. Salary, do you want to work at a, a remote satellite location? Do you want to work from home? Or do you want to work at the company headquarters? Uh, do you want it to be an innovation position, more innovative position? R&D, intellectual property, right? Do you want to be on the project management on more of the innovation side? Or, you know, project management and R&D? Do you want to be in the early marketing steps? Do you want to do, be doing some of the writing, the white papers that, that uh, would likely work closely with R&D? Or do you want to go towards more of the commercialization side? Right. And some careers could be on either side. You have to decide though which side you want to be on. You know, you could be a data scientist on more of the innovation side or the commercialization side where they're looking at data after the product's been released. Uh, user experience researchers is one that's more on the it's a very popular career now for PhDs, more on the commercialization side after the product or service or app is in the marketplace. Technical support, technical sales, uh, regulatory affairs, right? could be anywhere across the spectrum, but you get to choose or you should choose which side of the spectrum do you want to be on? Do you want to be in a client facing role? Do you want to be in a role where you got to manage projects and do a lot of coordination or one where you work more alone? Do you want to work with a large team, a small team? That's how you choose a career, not by, you know, saying a job title out loud. And if it sounds impressive enough, Okay, how to write a resume. Lots of articles on resumes. Uh, I want to focus on the cover letter, though. And I love this article. Uh, it, it doesn't have a person. It's just, it's on the muse. And I almost, I thought at first that we wrote it because it has exactly, exactly the methodology that we teach in the Cheeky Scientist Association, right? First of all, the cover letter needs to include the hiring manager's name. Thank you. We say this all the time and everyone's like, oh, it's so hard to find their name. Of course, it's hard. That's why if you have a cover letter with the hiring manager's name, the recruiter's name, you're likely to get an interview. Do not say to whom it may concern, dear sir, madam. Seriously, it's, it's like this was lifted out of our blog articles. Uh, but it's a great point to come back to give, the, find the person to specifically send this cover letter to. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time. Number two, it says craft a killer opening line. The first line of the cover letter, they're probably going to start stop reading after the first line if the first line doesn't have anything that sticks out. Now, this article goes into uh, you know making I don't know these clever lines that stand out using certain verbs or whatever. Um, 
that's fine. It, 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 you know, it says, you know, use numerical results, et cetera. That's fine. But in that first opening line, what I want you to do is I want you to drop somebody else's name. So you're going to need two names for your cover letter. This is assuming you actually want to get hired into the job, do the work to figure out who the hiring manager or recruiter is for the role and make the cover letter out to them. And then set up an informational interview with somebody that works at that company. It doesn't take long to do, get an introduction, do whatever it takes. Just have a five minute conversation, an email, whatever. Get to the point where they're comfortable enough for, uh, to give you a yes. When you ask, I really appreciate you taking the time to, you know, tell me a little bit about this company and what it's like to work there. I saw there's an opportunity for a job there. I am sending the cover letter to XYZ hiring manager. I was wondering if I could just mention that you and I talked about the role and then you can give them the exact line that you would say, which would be something like, um, you know, so it'd be dear so-and-so. I had a conversation recently with Jane Doe about the R&D project management position at XYZ company. Uh, I think I would be an excellent fit because of dot, dot, dot. Right? So all you're saying is you had a conversation. You're not saying this person recommended me, this person really likes me, et cetera. Very easy to get a yes for approval for that. Very often the other person's like, well, yeah, let me know when you get the cover letter done and I'll give it to the hiring manager myself because guess what? If you get hired and that person referred you, they're very likely to get an employee referral bonus. Okay, so uh, there's a few more articles we can go through in the cheeky stack here. Uh, I really like this article by Yahoo. It's in, well, it's in Yahoo Finance by Gabrielle Olia, and it's very detailed. I recommend this article, how to interview for a job over Zoom. If you're setting up for your first video interview, if you haven't done one yet, you very likely will. This goes through, again, it's almost like they followed our methodology A to Z uh, from doing your research preparing for how you will talk about your past experience. Again, what have I said multiple times just on this show? You have to tell a story about how everything you have done has prepared you for where you are right now in this position you're about to get into, how it makes you the perfect candidate for this position. Prepare for the questions. Uh, prepare questions for the interviewer. At least 10 questions. They might answer five of them. At least 10 questions. Write them down as you're doing your research about the company. And please practice. I don't care if you've used Zoom every single day. Practice, do a mock interview. Ask somebody how your internet connection is. Have a backup plan after your trial run, okay? Make sure you have a, not just a backup plan for another software program, another device you can jump onto in case whatever, the battery shuts down suddenly. But also have a professional voice message on your phone on whatever uh, Zoom or Skype app you're using. Most of these you can have a voicemail on as well. Put a voicemail on. Put a professional picture too, right? If you sh if if you show up to their Zoom room as an example or whatever software app they're using, and it's going to look at your member's profile, make sure that there's not some random picture or just the letter of your first name. Put your professional picture so they see that. Choose an interview time when your energy will be high, right? First, uh, uh, first few hours of the morning. So not the first one or two hours, but after you wake up, one or two hours. When you're fresh, do not do it late in the day if you can help it. And then be on the app 15 minutes before the scheduled start time. Seriously, 15 minutes. If somebody comes into the room before you, it's a great opportunity to have some small talk to show how punctual you are. It's so refreshing for them to come into the room and for you to already be there. Okay? It doesn't show desperation. It shows professionalism. 
You can make sure you're on mute if you're doing anything else. I recommend not doing anything else once you're in the room. But try to get on for 15 minutes. Usually, it'll just have the little box on your screen saying, hey, we'll let you in once they're ready. Turn off all other notifications. Please remember to do this. Even if you usually leave your phone off, just double check it. Make sure that nothing can ding or bing or whatever else. Uh, and you know the final step is project your voice. I'm using a professional microphone. And just during this radio show, you can probably tell that my voice goes up and down. We even have people edit it afterwards. How are you sounding on the phone? I want you to have your friend record you on the phone and play it back for you. Seriously. As in have them record you on, on the phone. You can do this on Zoom and other apps. Then the file will go on their phone and then they can text you the file and then listen to yourself on how you are coming across by audio. This is an incredible practice that will really, really help you in terms of just how much you need to project uh, your voice. Lots of other great advice in that article. Okay, let's go back to the stack here. Um, there's a few other things I wanna, I wanna cover. I like this article by Regina Borsellino, uh, hard skills versus soft skills transferable skills, as we call them, because in the transferable skills section, there are some good examples. And guess what's number one on the list again? You've heard me talk about this adaptability, right? Companies want to know you can pivot, that you're flexible, that you're versatile. Then no surprise here, number two, number three, collaboration, communication, conflict management. This is a great one. Also starts with a C, curiosity. Curiosity, love that, right? Research, analysis, curiosity, discovery mindset. Those are ones I added. Management, organization, perseverance, another great one. Work ethic. Why are you not telling people you work hard that you can persevere? Time management as well. That's something that's very important. Now, this article really fired me up. <laughs> if you check our social media, I, uh, I had to get on there myself and uh, say, you know what? Sorry, too little, too late. It's an article in Science. Uh, the title is, My University Plans to Terminate My Department. We're Trying to Save It. And as I'm reading the article, all I can think is, boo, who? Why do lifetime academics suddenly, uh, you know, spark into action when it's their careers that are about to be terminated, when they're the ones facing the dead end? But when you, the PhD student, the postdoc, the adjunct, are facing your dead end career, they just say, oh, you just got to work harder. Oh, you just needed to publish another paper. You just got to do something else. And these people, meanwhile, they've seen or they've chosen to turn away from data for 50 years, showing full-time professorships plummeting, showing most PhDs leave academia. And they've fed you the lie one way or another. Most have justified to themselves, to you, that it's okay to turn away from that data and to try to be a professor. Look, go, going after something that's difficult is great. Going after something that's not going to be there, not going to exist, uh, that's, it, I, I really think to, to the world of PhDs, that's, uh, it's manipulative. They, they've, they've dishonored themselves and they've done you a disservice as your mentor. They can't even, they don't even update their curriculum to talk about how to leverage the skills you're learning as a PhD student or a postdoc in the real world, in industry, in business, where you're actually going to use them. This article is laughable. It is laughable. It even says in the article, uh, you know, we thought about uh, changing the curriculum, but we really just didn't do it. Why? Because they were focused on their careers and using 
PhDs, other academics beneath them as cheap labor. Uh, it has a pull quote, a dramatic pull quote here that says the quality of our research wasn't enough to save us. Uh, no, your research, right, is uh, probably not that high quality, uh, right? We know that money chases value. There's not enough value in your research or money would go, go towards it. Plus, guess what? The system is so broken. And I've been saying this now for over a year, certainly since the pandemic has happened. This is a quote from the article. But the overhead from our grants did not make up for the lack of tuition dollars. The reason that academia is broke since the pandemic is because uh, undergrad enrollments are down up to 20, like 21%, depending on the stats you look at. That's like a 21% uh, reduction in revenue for the university. That's why all of these uh, departments are getting cut. And that's why it's going to get worse than it is right now. You're thinking all these lifetime academics are thinking, oh, but our grant dollars are the same. I'm publishing. I'm getting the same amount of grants. Doesn't matter because the university is subsidizing a lot of the expenses for you, whatever department or lab that you're in. And the university is a business. And when that business loses revenue, 20%, that is a huge cut. They can't support you. And now, no matter how much you publish in science, right, uh, to try to save it last minute after years and years and years of ignoring the problem, uh, it's too little too late. All right. So last couple of uh, articles in the stack here. Biotech in-demand jobs. I had a couple of people reach out saying, hey, why are you focused so much on biotech? Biotech is the, the term most often referred to even if it's a more of a pharmaceutical job or a tech job, um, biotech and tech, these are the jobs for the companies that are growing the fastest. Small and mid-size, right? So anywhere really from 100 to 1,000 employees can be considered small in the, in the biotech space. Uh, mid-size can be 1,000 to several thousand. These are the companies that I want to put on your radar that a lot of you don't know about. You're only focused on the same 10 companies everybody's heard of. What is the no most number one in demand role at these companies right now. This was just published. Great job, Kimberly Krager on this article. Project management. This is why we have the project management consortium. Your ability to organize, to communicate, to juggle a lot of different tasks, to, to uh, delegate whether you know it or not, to document makes you an incredible project manager. You can get paid so well for this in industry right now. Read this article. Biotech in Demand Jobs, Project Manager, it's by Biospace. Entrepreneur, I have a few articles in Entrepreneur. I have one I would love for you to read about how companies like Facebook are hiring PhDs. If you think you're not valuable, read that article. You'll see your value. This article though, not written by me, three lesser known biotech stocks that are surging. B-Gene, B-E-I, Gene, Okay, this is a commercial stage biotech company. They develop and commercialize molecularly uh, targeted and immuno-oncology cancer therapeutics. Uh, some of their major products are uh, Brukinsa for curing RR mantle cell lymphoma, Abraxane, I think I'm saying that right, A-B-R-A-X-A-N-E for curing breast cancer, and then Tissel Lizumab, uh, for uh, classical Hodgkin's per, uh, lymphoma. So during the third quarter in 2020, 
I think their revenue went something like uh, over 80%. So that was, uh, the article says over 91 million. Check out that company. Another one. Now, now, I'm not telling you to buy stock with these companies. I'm telling you to look at these companies for hiring, hiring you. Uh, Alindlem, these biotech companies always have the, the most fun names to pronounce. So A-L-N-Y-L-A-M, pharmaceuticals, right? So it's a pharmaceutical company. And this is why I had to explain to the PhDs that reached out, but it's considered a biotech, okay? Because, because it's small. They commercialize RNAi, right? So RNA inter uh, interference therapeutics. A lot of investigational ones uh, focused on cardiometabolic diseases, genetic medicines, hepatic infectious diseases, and diseases related to the central nervous system. Uh, the last one is Zalab Limited, Z-L-A-B for shorts, Z-A-I, one word, then L-A-B for lab for another. Uh, they develop, discover, license, commercial therapeutics uh, for oncology, infectious diseases, autoimmune diseases. Um, they have um, Niraparib is one of their drugs they're working on. Three companies to check out that are hiring now, uh, not very well known, and they're, they're definitely surging at the end of last year and going into this year. Last thing again, just like the last radio show, I want to continue to develop your business acumen. We've talked about earnings calls, why any company that does a public earning call, right? these publicly traded companies, you should sit on them. There's so much information. I've had a lot of people ask me, okay, what are earnings calls? Are they required by all companies that are publicly traded? Because I can't find them for some companies. So they're not legally mandated. They don't have to happen. Now, public companies are required to release the details of their financial performance, but their earnings don't have to be in those details, right? So uh, some of them don't even have to have, yeah, earnings calls at all. Uh, so it's not unheard of to cancel an earning call and not have one. Uh, they, they do tend to take place at a lot of the publicly traded companies quarterly, of course. Uh, we talked about you know, the definitions of quarterly on the last radio show. Uh, close to the call, the company will usually issue a press release, a high-level summary, the quarterly financials. Uh, they're just important right? because investors want to know if revenue was down, the company's not doing well, their earnings were down. Uh, they want to know what the company's going to do about it. And usually if the company explains it well or has a plan, they're going to lose less investors than if they have no plan at all or no reason or rationale. Um, that's why investors follow these calls, right? They want to, if they're going to continue to investing, they're looking for that relevant information. Do you, what's your plan? How are you responding to the market? Are you going to, are you making, uh, are you sacrificing common sense for, or good science or logic for, you know, the, the CEO's uh, pet projects, whatever it might be, right? What, what's the reason why earnings were down? If earnings are up, how are you going to leverage it? Uh, the structure of an earnings call, this is the part that I wanted to get through. So uh, we'll usually include a safe harbor statement, right? This is just lets everybody know the financial results may include predictions about the future. That may not necessarily come true. This is so, you know, investors can't sue them. There's a presentation and discussion of the financial results. Uh, very often the CFO will get on. There will be a detailed financial section. They'll dive into the numbers so they can so investors can get a sense of their relative health. This is amazing for you to be able to sit on this call because it doesn't matter if you own a uh, you know all the company's shares or as you know half the company shares or one share or no share. You can learn 
because they're trying to recruit new investors too. And then sometimes there'll be a Q&A at the end. They usually last about an hour or so. And uh, what you can do if you get on an earnings call is study up on the history of the company at first, kind of track what the experts, so-called experts, I guess, are saying uh, online about the company, read the earnings release before the call. And then after the call, you can see uh, the impact that the call had on the market, which is pretty amazing. All right. So this takes us to the end of the radio show. That's the end of the Cheeky Stack. Thank you very much for listening today. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. I'm Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's Cheeky Radio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, and enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees. Nobody else offers this. PhDsgethired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD, and remember that knowledge is power and your network is your net worth. <laughs>